KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and we want to thank and we want to feature Father Greg Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries in L.A. For more than 34 years, Father Greg and Homeboy have stood with the most marginalized people in L.A., uh, young people who've been involved with gangs and who had been incarcerated. Every year, nearly 10,000 people turn to Homeboy for what Father Greg calls a community of kinship, wraparound services, job training, and hope. We'll hear from Father Greg Boyle later in the hour. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today, as usual, in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, first things first, news of the class struggle in California, regular feature of this broadcast, the biggest strike in the country this year and the biggest strike in the history of higher education continued this week as 48,000 grad student employees of the University of California marched in picket lines on all 10 campuses. They include teaching assistants, research assistants, postdocs, and some others. The end of the fall quarter is approaching uh, after Thanksgiving, and that means final exams. And that means somebody has to grade the final exams, and that is the job of grad student employees. So I imagine the university would like a settlement soon uh, so that final exams will be graded. Otherwise, hundreds of thousands of college students will get incompletes for their fall courses. So let's talk about the UC strike. Uh, the union representing student employees at the University of California is the UAW, the United Auto Workers. How did these grad students become part of the United Auto Workers Union? Well, I should add, I wrote a piece about the strike and Nelson Lichtenstein, who is the preeminent labor historian generally, and in particular, the preeminent historian of the UAW, also wrote a piece. Uh, he wrote it for dissent. I wrote it, of course, for the American Prospect. And Nelson's piece noted that the UAW has, uh, has always augmented the letter A in its <laughs> title. It was initially United Auto Workers, and it was United Auto and Aircraft Workers, which changed to United Auto and Aerospace Workers. But they also represented John Deere and, and uh, Caterpillar. So it was United Auto, Aerospace, and Agricultural Implement workers. And Nelson suggested now they could add another A for academic. <laughs> uh, and I, I should point out, I mean, I, I think my piece and Nelson's piece should be read in tandem. And Nelson just pointed out that this is that there are more student employees of universities than there are employees of the federal government, if you go all across the nation, uh, that they are a particularly exploited class, which is certainly true. And both he and I noted that for what UC pays its 48,000 workers who are now on strike in the most expensive housing market in creation, you can't live on that. Now, all of that said, what I was writing was that the UAW has actually been more successful in recent decades organizing college campuses than it's been in organizing those auto factories in the South that have been opened by uh, Volkswagen and Nissan and Toyota and so on. And that uh, the uh, initial affinity uh, between the UAW and grad students began in the Northeast, where there was this uh, small 
rather radical union uh, called District 65 Distribution Workers, who mainly started out organizing just little small business establishments around New York. And because they, they you know, had all these little entities, which, which big unions of any political persuasion kind of avoided because it wasn't cost efficient for them, uh, they had a very activist culture, a lot of shop stewards, a lot of uh, organizers and so on. And it turned out that they overlapped with the most uh, left region of the United Auto Workers, which has always been the New York, New England region, some of whose leaders I actually personally encountered. And, and both the uh, District 65 and Region 9, 9A of the UAW were uh, early critics of the Vietnam War, early supporters of the civil rights movement. I remember when I was a student at Columbia, sitting with a bunch of other students in some student's grungy basement apartment, planning a major anti-war action, and the guy knocks at the door, comes in, says, I'm Ed Gray, I'm from the United Auto Workers, how can I help you? At the time, Ed Gray was a deputy director of Region 9 and 9A, and then he became the director when his predecessor retired. Um, and this was about getting, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of students down to a demonstration against the war in D.C., and they provided the buses. And, you know, so there was a real synergy between those two unions. Now, the guy who heads one of the big locals, the locals of uh, teaching assistants at UC, who's a a grad student right now, a a, a doctoral candidate in medieval old English, uh, Raphael Jaime, told me that Initially, when grad students at UCLA were at UC and also Berkeley uh, were looking for um, some union uh, to take up their cause, the experience of the District 65 in the Northeast region of of the UAW appealed to them. That they had UAW had organized and successfully won contracts in recent years at two private universities the two most prominent private universities in New York City, Columbia and NYU, which is actually a lot harder than uh, at at public universities, since after all, uh, to take UC as an example, the Board of Regents uh, is mainly appointed by a Democratic governor who has a lot of clout, and political uh, pressure can be applied by the unions that, uh, you know, do help Democrats get elected, so that that sort of stuff. But... uh, Obviously, this was a union that had synergy. And since I wrote that piece, I have since found out from my friend John Judas, who was a graduate student at Berkeley in 64-65, that uh, the UAW uh, actually made a bid to organize students then uh, Wow! under the leadership of the late, great Paul Schrade, who actually... Was the Western Regional Director of the UAW, probably the leftmost regional director the UAW had, and who who died at age ninety seven earlier this month. Yeah. And Paul had been a supporter of the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, which was the kind of uh, politics you didn't find anywhere else <laughs> initially in the American labor movement. Although today there were many veterans of that movement who have had long and uh, fruitful careers in labor, but this was unthinkable then except for Paul Schrade. So there is a history there. Have you heard anything about a progress towards a settlement or how the negotiations are going? I know this is all very secret right now. The, the, they've made a presentation to the regents, I understand. And as I said in my introduction, kind of the general thinking is the university would really like a settlement before final exam week. Do you know anything more about this? 
I, I really don't. But what I do know and, and what I, I did write about was uh, there's one other reason why the UAW was a good union for these workers to affiliate with. And that is sort of as a holdover from the days when it, you know, represented 300,000 General Motors workers whom it took out on strike every five or 10 years and uh, had to pay, uh, you know, uh, that many strike benefits to that many workers for weeks and sometimes months, the UAW still has a very big strike fund. Uh, We know that last year it was in excess of $800 million, and uh, some Detroit UAW figures have told me that uh, for now, $145 million has been allotted for strike benefits to the UC strikers, and there will be more if uh, this drags on. There is always a question when you're going out on strike, uh, as to how your striking members are going to pay the rent and pay for food. And, you know, they're getting 400 a week, which is is not very much by any standard. But then a lot of them don't really have take-home pay that's much higher than 400 <laughs> a week either. So it doesn't necessarily mean a downward shift in lifestyle. But, you know, for that reason, among others, this was a good union for those, for those uh, uh, university employees to affiliate with. And I, uh, I am hoping that the regents and the governor and the president of the university are aware that the auto workers do have the resources to keep the strike fund going for a long time if necessary. They do not have to settle this next week. Right. Now I'd like to switch to um, labor politics in LA. We all remember the how the city council president engaged in this kind of, who's Latina, engaged in this kind of racist rant against black uh, reapportionment issues a month ago. Uh, and that meeting, that was a secret meeting at the, at the LA County Federation of Labor. She, the president of the city council resigned, the head of the LA County Fed resigned. And the news today is that the county Fed has elected a new leader, uh, Yvonne Wheeler, who will become the first black woman to lead the LA County Federation of Labor. I understand they represent 800,000 workers in 300 unions. They are the powerhouse union of of California. What are the political considerations here? Well, they are the powerhouse, and that's been the case since the late great Miguel Contreras made them a powerhouse in uh, LA area elections. You know, before Miguel came along, no one was walking precincts in L.A. because it's too spread out. This is the general wisdom was no one could do it. But he got unions walking precincts and turning elections and really mobilized the Latino and immigrant vote like no one had before. And let me Um, just underline, we've always described this as the Latino labor renaissance in L.A. Now there's a black woman as the president. It seems to me that after the discussion uh, that uh, was held at the county fed with Nuri Martinez and fed leader Ron Herrera and Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon, that it was almost politically necessary for the uh, fed to elect an African-American uh, to succeed Herrera, who resigned uh, just after the revelation of the uh, tapes. And uh, Ms. Wheeler uh, has worked for quite a number of unions. I think the most interesting and progressive of which is the communication workers, where she started out as just simply an operator employee and rose quickly through the ranks because of her talents. But she's also worked 
for government public sector unions, AFSCME and AFG, which is the main federal government employees union. So she's kind of familiar with both both sides of, of the labor movement. She inherits a pretty potent organization. And I think anyone who reads through the entire transcript of that meeting, which the LA Times published in the last day or two, would have to conclude just by reading that, that she's a distinct improvement on on her predecessor. Now, let me just say, I did not read the entire transcript. It is fascinating. The more you know L.A. political history, it's even more fascinating. As for Ron Herrera, his chief concern seemed to be electing the the guy who lost to Hugo Soto Martinez, O'Farrell, in the Hollywood area district, and mainly because it seems O'Farrell's father was a teamster whom Herrera knew that that seemed to be his major his major concern. Honestly, if you work your way through this entire transcript, which is very long, it only becomes clear to the participants at the end that they have two very different ideas about how dis, how redistricting has to be made to help them. Because Gil Cedillo's desire to lose some neighborhoods he wouldn't carry very well and get some others kind of runs counter to what Nuri Martinez needed, where it needed the lines to go. But it took them a full hour uh, to actually figure out that they were not all on the same page. Meanwhile, I I have to say, from my point of view, the most distressing thing uh, in the tapes were Kevin DeLeon's continual Latino-centric comments. Not that they were denigrating in the way that Nuri Martinez's were, but, but, but a sense a kind of sense of we're isolate we're isolated in the LA political community. The Jews are with the blacks, and uh, and and so on, which is an interesting argument that's not always true. Kevin came to political prominence first by organizing the the demonstrations against Prop One Eighty Seven back in nineteen ninety four, which would have denied all public services to undocumented immigrants. Well. When Prop 187 came for a uh, came for a vote, it was opposed on the east side of LA and the west side of LA. That was a Jewish Latino coalition. Then it is also true that there has been a Jewish Black coalition. But you know these things are inevitable in urban politics, which I, I think in many ways are the politics of different ethnic groups combining, splitting, coming back together kind of amoeba-like in their form uh, shape-shifting. I, I can understand some of the the origins of this feeling, particularly since LA is 48% Latino and only eight to 9% African-American at this point. The Latino community has greatly grown. Uh, the African-American community has, has diminished uh, as a share and I think an actual population of Los Angeles over the last few decades, but yeah. that that is not yet reflected in political representation within the city. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with the Latino uh, population, including a lot of people who aren't citizens and with low rates of voter participation. So Blacks are 8 to 9% of the total population of Los Angeles, but LA has a mayor-elect who's a Black woman, and the county fed, the most powerful political organization in Southern California, is also now headed by a Black woman. And the LA Times suggested this morning that with Karen Bass as mayor, the unions expect a more pro-worker agenda at City Hall. The LA Times didn't explain what this was. What do you think it means? 
I'm not entirely sure. Um, uh, I, I I think Karen Bass is just, just comes out of mil, uh, out of a milieu that is more familiar with unions and labor issues than Eric Garcetti has been. And I think with uh, Wheeler at the county Fed, I think you might see more county Fed activity to support things like the the Starbucks strike. Mm-hmm. or uh, uh, whatever efforts go on at organizing Amazon warehouses in the Inland Empire, which are not even in LA, but you know this is still the labor powerhouse that's nearest to there. I, th- I think you can see that certainly there are uh, public employee unions for whom Wheeler used to work and with uh, whose backing Karen Bass emphatically received, you know, that have contracts with the city. And I wouldn't expect uh, that the city under Karen Bass would in any way, shape, or form have it in for them. Yeah. And then there's another uh, aspect to Southern California labor and in the economy. The Wall Street Journal reports that in August and September, for the first time in decades, the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach came in second to the port of New York and New Jersey in terms of their uh, activity. This is a seems like a sea change to use it literally term. yes 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 <laughs> literally a, uh, uh, and we uh, turn to you as a sailor to tell us exactly what that means <laughs> some sailor what we don't know is how much of this is the result of some immediate situations which may not last uh, it's certainly related to the effect of the lockdown in china which has reduced the uh, flow of uh, goods from china to the United States. And, you know, some of the activity on the Atlantic side is uh, the result of the U.S. becoming this huge supplier of liquid nat- natural gas to uh, a Europe cut off from, uh, from Russia. But, 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 um, the, the journal came up with figures showing that uh, it's not just shipping natural gas here. We're getting more imports at the moment from uh, Europe uh, than we than we have perhaps ever. And we're also exporting thing, more things in containers, which obviously are not holding oil or gas. So no, I have one big question about this. Yeah. German workers are just about the highest paid in the world. Chinese workers are not the highest paid in the right. world. That uh, was the whole logic of- The whole logic of our corporate offshoring was to go to cheap labor. The The, the whole uh, ideology was, well, we should cut deals with those countries so we can lock in the cheap labor. I wouldn't mind if we cut a deal with Germany. Maybe that would raise labor standards uh, for, for American workers because they certainly are higher in Germany and in much of Europe and much of the EU than they are in the U.S. More immediately, you know, we're about to, uh, we're going through negotiations between the West Coast Longshore uh, Union and the Pacific Maritime Association, which is the negotiator for all of the ports on the uh, on the West Coast. This may throw a bit of a monkey wrench into uh, into those negotiations, and, and I'm not entirely sure which side it, it would uh, cause a, a, a rethink and maybe a pulling back on, but um, it certainly is a factor. And again, you know, we don't know if, if things are going to really pick up once China is done with its lockdown, because relations between the U.S. and China uh, are certainly not what they used to be. In your article in the American Prospect about this, you make the fascinating argument that the 
domino theory works better for the spread of capitalism than it did for the spread of communism. Please explain. Yeah, well, geezers like you and me remember the domino theory, which was uh, the defense, you know, the uh, advocates of the Vietnam War said, oh, if Vietnam falls, all of Southeast Asia, all of Asia would fall. Well, Vietnam, Vietnam may be a tiny, insignificant country, but. Right. But uh, at the moment, American corporations are busily relocating Chinese factories to uh, Vietnam and India and, and, and the rest of uh of Southeast Asia. So there does seem to be a domino theory, but it's <laughs> it's for capitalism, not communism. Uh, yet another thing that in hindsight was all screwed up about the <laughs> Vietnam War. Well, last but not least, it's time for today's Trump talk. There's a new poll out from Quinnipiac University, one of the really good polls. It shows, it shows that nearly Six in 10 Americans said it is a bad thing that Trump is running again for president, while just 34% of Americans said it was a good thing. Among independents, 58% said Trump running is a bad thing. I wonder if you have any comment on these figures. Well, I do. Let's focus on the minority uh, people who said it was a good thing. Uh, they may be a minority in the public at large, but if we take those figures seriously, they're a majority within the Republican Party. And even if they're not a majority, assuming that uh, every everyone and, and uh, her uncle and his aunt is going to be running for president in the Republican primaries, Trump just needs to hang on to his base. And unless Ron DeSantis or someone like him can consolidate all the other forces, which doesn't look really necessarily likely, Trump could get the nomination again, uh, for which, honestly, some Democrats are praying because he would be the easiest Republican to beat in 2024. DeSantis, of course, is now the favorite of the anti-Trump pundits. But let's not forget what Trump did to his rivals in 2016, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. He tagged them Little Marco and Lion Ted. He pretty much destroyed them among Republicans in the primaries. Uh, do you think he might be doing the same thing with a guy he calls Ron DeSanctimonious? Well, it's his M.O. It's, it's, it's how, he, uh, how he campaigns, and he's always campaigning for one thing or another. This time around so far, it, it doesn't look like he's going to be abetted in this by uh, the Murdoch empire, which is clearly turned against Trump on Fox News and the Wall Street Journal editorial pages and the New York Post. Let's just say uh, the New York Post had that small line on their front page. Right. What was it? Yes. Florida man makes an announcement. Yeah. Page 23. Uh, Right. There, there are many powers that be in the Republican Party, not just Mitch McConnell, that understand they need to move beyond Trump. Again, whether Trump's base can be made to understand that and everyone else to consolidate the opposition behind one candidate, that, that's a dicier proposition. Harold Meyerson on this week's Dicier Propositions. Harold Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for today and happy Thanksgiving. And happy turkey to you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener. 
talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with the founder of Homeboy Industries, Father Gregory Boyle. 30 years ago, he started persuading people that in a world of systematic poverty and violence, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Father Greg is an American Jesuit priest. Homeboy Industries is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program on the planet. Has offices in LA near downtown. He's won lots of awards. Now he's written a third book. It's about the power of extravagant tenderness, and it's called The Whole Language. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Father Greg, welcome back. It's good to be with you, John. Well, the pandemic has been hard on everybody. It must have been especially tough on the people you work with. Yeah, I mean, I think initially, certainly when we were on pretty full lockdown and everybody had to do therapy and classes via Zoom, which was a challenge for everybody, including, you know, um, tutoring and GED prep and anger management and all that stuff. But the mayor uh, declared us an essential organization pretty early on. And so we uh, pivoted very quickly to turn our restaurant and bakery uh, into, uh, you know, we, we fed, you know, homeless folks and we address food insecurity for seniors. And, and so that became quite the going operation that utilized all our folks. So, but we've been pretty up and running for, uh, I want to say a year now, probably. Right. I'm sure that some of your people died during, during the pandemic and you write in your new book, the whole language, everything stops when there is grieving to be done and that you lean into the grief. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I think in probably in my introduction of, to the book where I talk about, you know, identity, you know, like things get upended, you know. So for me, you know, it, it's I'm on the road, I'm giving talks, I'm in every detention facility in Los Angeles County doing services as a priest and then interacting with homies face to face. And then all of a sudden that kind of ends. And there's a grieving to be done to that. And so you lean in and, and, and then you're curious about it and then you savor it and then you relish it. And then somehow you're trying to get to joy in it. And, and that kind of what is what happens. But grieving isn't just about folks dying. It's also about letting go of the shedding of some kind of layers of how you see yourself and how you engage with the world. So that happened as well you know but uh, quite apart from that i i have three covid funerals kind of um, coming up you know and trying to kind of juggle those <laughs> and i had three double funerals from covid and during the course of this so you know there's a lot a lot a of lot. people dying you you open your new book the whole language writing that the pandemic showed that Inequality is not a defect in the system. So what is it? Yeah, I said it's not a defect in the system. It is the system. So it is uh, by design kind of how it, how it works. And so, you know, it's not like people are selfish. I don't think people are, but people are self-absorbed. So a lot of times you have to turn things inside out and it's how you, you know, look at things that, that matters. And, and so... So you want to be able to, um, you know, address the system by, by a counter system. 
we always think that uh, doing systemic change is like lifting up the hood of something and then asking for a wrench, you know, but it's really about, it's not just about pointing things out, though you have to do that, but it's really about pointing the way. It's about alternatives to a system. So if the system wants to punish wound, then offer a counter sign to that, which is, well, what if we healed wound? What if we attended to injury rather than banish and ostracize injury? So, you know, so if you want to address some kind of systemic issue like mass incarceration, I think that's what you do. You, you counterpose it with some other way of imagining. And I just want to review for a minute the way Homeboy works. A lot of the people at Homeboy's had terrible childhoods with, you know, abusive or missing parents. Then they did terrible things to other people. And then they spent years, sometimes decades in prison. And then they come to you. And then what happens? Well, you have to provide a safe place. So that, that's the initial thing for most vexing social dilemma, homelessness, mental health issues, disaffected youth, and gang violence and returning citizens you present a place that's safe and then people can inhabit their truth in a place that holds them and cherishes them. So if it's true that the traumatized will cause trauma, then it's equally true that the cherished will be able to find their way to the joy there is in cherishing themselves and others. So it offers a certain kind of resilience that's really newfound for people. And then they leave us after 18 months knowing that a healing ends in the graveyard, but you can do essential, foundational, fundamental healing, and that's what happens here in their 18 months here. Then they're connected, they're engaged, and they're, they're kind of vital in this own kind of uh, relational wholeness, we would call it here. You get the title of, of all your books from the guys, uh, sometimes the girls at Homeboy. This title, The Whole Language, was something a former gang member in the book you call him Mario that he told you about being, as he put it, locked up in county and having a cellmate, a Russian kid named Peter. Tell us about the title. Yeah, so I had uh, testified on this guy's behalf because they wanted to deport him to Uzbekistan. <laughs> he came here with his mom when he was nine. And he got into a Latino gang. So when I came back after testifying for him and he didn't get deported, um, in fact, he's working here now. So I saw one of his homies. I said, do you know this guy, David? And he goes, oh, my God, Russian boy. We call him Russian boy. And he said, um, hey, check this out. We were cellies at Men's Central Jail. And every evening he'd walk out to the payphone. He'd talk to his mom and he spoke Russian. And he said, damn, gee, he spoke the whole language, which was his way of saying fluent. He was fluent. So uh, when he said that, I went, wow, this is great. Because what, what if we were to aspire to a certain fluency, you know, the whole language, which is to see, which is I call therapeutic mysticism, where you see the whole person and you get underneath things and you're not tripped up by behavior. The goal is not a, be, a behaving community, but a, but a belonging community. Sometimes I, I glom onto these things and then I work backwards. So I go, oh, I like that, the whole language. What is the whole language? That's kind of a, how I posit it. And, and then the subtitle is the power of 
extravagant tenderness. Yeah, I have to ask you about that. Extravagant tenderness. Is, isn't ordinary tenderness a, enough? Yeah, except I, I try to get uh, highfalutin. <laughs> I'm a Jesuit, so Jesuits get highfalutin. But, you know, part of it is to, to say it's not ordinary tenderness, that it's more... And again, I talked theologically that, you know, how do we move from the, you know, the doom and gloom of the God that we've settled for to not a gloomy God, but a, a roomy one, one that is spacious. <laughs> and so, and so there you are, you know, it, you know, you receive the tender glance, you become the tender glance, you try to see as God sees, and you, you kind of understand the depth of what people are contending with, you know? So, so what about love the sinner, hate the sin. Yeah, that's kind of an old chestnut that we've, we've liked to, I, I don't think sin is a very helpful thing. You know, I, I remember once I was uh, at a conference and a guy got up and he was proposing a program to deal with gang violence. And I remember he, at one point, he pounded on the podium and he said, look, people, this works. <laughs> And I remember I wrote in my program, yeah, but I bet it doesn't help. <laughs> and, and I remember writing that and then thinking to myself, not everything that works helps, but everything that helps works. And the notion of sin and the kind of, you know, love, you know, the sinner, but not the sin, all that stuff is very, not very unsophisticated. I think probably for, you know, a thousand years, it probably worked in terms of controlling people, but it never helped. It never invited people to some spacious view of God. I, and I remember thinking the other day even that, that I think tenet is true. Not everything that works helps. But if you invited people to some larger love, that helps. But it also works if, you're, if your goal is to somehow control behavior. But the sin thing has really, we've kind of backed the sin horse. And it's a way of people not really coming to terms with that people are unshakably good and everybody belongs to us. Now, what does that action mean? What does it mean that a guy assaults an aged Asian woman on the streets of San Francisco? What is that telling you? If it's just Asian hate crime and if it's just racist, then you don't get beyond your moral outrage. You don't get underneath it where you say, oh, wow, does a healthy, whole, well person ever do that ever? No. Well, then maybe we heal people. Maybe we try to uh, include people. Maybe we try to deliver mental health services in a timely and appropriate way. So that feels more sophisticated to me in a good way. Mm -hmm. In a lower key, there's a lot of wonderful stories in this book, as in your others. One of my favorites is you describe bringing a couple of homeboys with you to give a talk to a thousand school superintendents, I think it is, and you have your guy sit in the front row, and one of them, you call him Eddie, you say he's been at Homeboy for four months. He says to you in the elevator afterwards, you know what I love most about Homeboy? And what, what was his answer? Yeah, so we were waiting for the elevator. There were two other people with us. And so he he's a little tiny guy. I just saw him the other day. I hadn't seen him for a while. And just tiny. And he was hanging on to my 
my shoulder and we're waiting for the elevator for the parking structure to arrive. And he was leaning his head on my, on my arm. And I remember saying in the book, he was, he wasn't tired. He was tender. <laughs> and then he, and we're both staring at the elevator and he says, you know what I love the most about homeboy. And I said, what? He says that you're not embarrassed by us. <laughs> and I remember it just kind of slayed me. I, I remember I, right away. I, my eyes just welled up with tears and we just stared at the elevator. And, and so I, I kind of riff on that, you know, about, I think I was talking about God at the time, about how God, the God we have, the one we settle for is, is embarrassed by us at cocktail parties, but it <laughs> wants to avoid us. But the God we actually have is never embarrassed by us if I recall it correctly. <laughs> but then there's another kind of story you tell. In the new book, you describe a visit to Pelican Bay State Prison. It's California's supermax. It's where the state puts the people they consider the worst of the worst. They call them incorrigibles. The guys who are there, many of them have been there for decades. Many will be there for the rest of their lives. Tell us about your visit to Pelican Bay. Well, I, I think I, I gave a talk or I did a mass. And, uh, but the, the story that I tell actually didn't happen to me. It was about a concert pianist with a little combo who, uh, you know, gave a concert. And uh, so they had like 80 guys in there with guards. And, uh, and the chaplain was telling me about it. And he said that they, before too long, that everybody was just weeping. And so they finished and the concert pianist had a kind of a Q&A and they said, do you have any questions? And nobody could speak because they were just sobbing from how beautiful <laughs> this was. And, and a guy got up and, and uh, he, the only question he could eke out was why? And, and then the, the pianist started crying and he says, because he knew exactly what the question meant. He said, because you are deserving of beauty and you are worthy and there is no difference between you and me. That's why. And I found it very powerful because I knew this guy who asked the question. And so uh, it was kind of a reference point. I, I kind of spent more time on it, but it was that we're all the same. We're all, we all were born wanting the same things. We all born really with the same last name. We belong to each other. And that's why. So if people want to support Homeboy Industries, what can they do? Well, they can go to our website, homeboyindustries.org. And especially during the holidays coming up, you can order all manner of things to send for Christmas gifts. Uh, you can come by and visit. You can volunteer with, you know, tutors and the like. And we have all sorts of businesses that you can electronic recycling and restaurants all over the place. And so you can help that way. Gregory Boyle's new book is The Whole Language, The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. Father Greg, thanks for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us Thank today. Thank you, John. It's always good to be with you. Stay well.
that's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music